You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Uh, it is my pleasure to, uh, to introduce my, my dear friend and colleague and also church uh, brother, uh, Dr. Tom Nettles. Uh, he has taught at Southern Seminary uh, many years and uh, has also uh, been on the faculty uh, at, uh, at, at Trinity and also at Southwestern Seminary. And um, he's also uh, uh, what we uh, call a senior professor. So he is at the top of the food chain in our, in our world um, and uh, teaches here uh, primarily uh, courses uh, in church history, Baptist history. Some of you might be familiar with a book called Baptists in the Bible that was written uh, with, uh, with uh, Dr. Bush. Uh, he and Tom Nettles wrote that book uh, at the height of the controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention and really was the foundational piece for, for, for our conservative resurgence. So in many ways, I'm uh, so grateful for him and Mrs. Nettles, Margaret. Tom Nettles sings in our choir at LaGrange Baptist Church. So we are... We are, we are friends on many levels, and his primary duty at LaGrange Baptist Church is to be on the food, the food committee. So when we have church fellowships, he is, he is serving food to our people. Uh, but it's, it's an example of, of his humility. He's probably going to kill me for saying this much about him, but I want you to know him like I know him. And uh, uh, an amazing historian, but also uh, a, a, a wonderful man of God. Uh, so we come before you today... Uh, wanting to point you to Jesus Christ and wanting to point you to his word and the glory of his word. And, and we feel like uh, using the word to guide, to guide our worship and to, and, to, and to sculpt worship and to sculpt liturgy uh, has really been something that has, has been extremely helpful for us at, at LaGrange Baptist Church. So for the first part of our, of our time, Dr. Nettles is going to look at this in a, in a historical perspective and then I'm going to look at it with you more on a, on a practical perspective and then a very practical perspective as we just, I just show you some of our, our worship orders that we've done. As we begin, let's have a word of prayer, and, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. Nettles. Our God and Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together for this conference and for these moments right now. And Lord, as your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path, Lord, I pray that that would be the case for us as we consider uh, the sculpting and design of corporate worship and the liturgies that, that, we, that we use each week. Thank you for uh, the, the folks in this room and the ministries that they represent. Lord, I thank you for my friend, uh, Tom Nettles, and I pray that for us, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. Well, thank you so much for being here at the conference and being in this particular breakout session. I was, <clears throat> I can't remember any time in my life when I was not attending worship services. Uh, my mother sang in the choir. <clears throat> I was always taken. I can I can remember a few days in sunbeams, 
singing a sunbeam, a sunbeam. Uh, I remember primary choir. Uh, our theme song was, Hear ye the master's call, give me thy best. In How many of you have sung that? How many have not sung that? Whoa! See, that, that, so that shows what a change has taken place. That's what I was hoping I would illustrate. Massive changes have taken place in our perception about what is appropriate music, what is fitting. There have been curmudgeons like me who have been very, very slow to come along, but have been convinced that the direction we're going is not bad. In fact, it is good and many times a lot better than, than what we did in the past. But it's, it's also emphasized to me that the thing that we should concentrate on is whether or not our corporate worship, the way we design our corporate worship, which is one of the major ways in which, in which people learn and how they are taught theology, um, is consistent with biblical truth. Now that's not a narrowing focus to say something is consistent with biblical truth is not something that presses you in, although it does present you with borders, but it also opens up to you the tremendous beauty and variety uh, and the challenge of discerning and sorting out the ways in which you can communicate biblical truth. Uh, it's, a, it's a lifetime of work there. And so when we talk about wanting worship to be built upon biblical truth and biblical parameters of methodology, that is not something that should make anyone feel like you're being repressed, but it's something that should be a challenge to you uh, because God's revelation is now is open to you and, and your personal spirituality, your personal perceptions of the glory of God, and your increasing knowledge of the Word of God is that which is going to serve uh, as a funnel through which the congregation is going to be taught. Uh, that truth. You'll never exhaust it uh, in this lifetime. And so it's with that <coughs> uh, conviction and with the, uh, the interest that I have had because of just how long my experience in worship services has been that I've developed a personal interest in, in all of these things. It can be done for ill and trivialities do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord. What is that? Uh, I mean, that, <clears throat> I thought that was what youth work was all about, was getting groups together and singing do Lord. But there's a lot better things that we sing now. So there can be trivialities, or there can be great <clears throat> profundities. Uh, and to, as uh, Dr. Crowder has used the word, the word, which I think is a very good word, to sculpt a worship service carefully, to craft a service that with self-consciousness does as much as you can in that service with biblical truth for the glory of Christ is the task that you have. So I want to uh, set before you just some preliminary ideas that I hope will prepare you for these, uh, uh, the, the practical operations that Dr. Crowder is going to talk about, which are in my mind, fantastic, Some of the best stuff I've ever been involved in personally. So let's look, look first of all at what I think is a compelling New Testament principle where Jesus gives us uh, fundamentally what worship is all about. And this occurs in a very unusual place. It occurs in a discussion with a 
woman who's been married five times and is living with a man who is not her husband and is a Samaritan uh, and is shunned by all the people of the town, by people who are shunned by the Jews. And so Jesus gives the basic principle of what real worship is in the context of his discussion with this woman. And this is the first time that verbally he personally tells someone he is the Messiah. So this should, this should be quite astounding to us. And I just want to read this text uh, and then move into my, my presentation. Verse 16 of John 4 Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So he commended her for being truthful, at least. <laughs> the woman said to him, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. It's a pretty confrontive statement, isn't it? Knowledge about how to worship is tremendously important for worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, I don't think it's accidental that he's talking about new covenant worship, worship in spirit and in truth, and at the same time that he identifies himself as the, as the Messiah, which immediately ties in true worship with the person and work of, of Christ, uh, which puts it just leaps and bounds ahead of anything that was practiced under the old covenant. Now the Christ is here. Now the fulfillment is here. And so when he says that we must worship in spirit and in truth, I think in the context we need to look at those words to understand what are the basic principles of New Testament worship. Well, Jesus said uh, that this is, the time is coming, and then he said, and now is when we change from ceremonial worship to worship that is not simply predictive, not typological, but one that is fulfilled and conceptually mature. That now worship will be what it's always been pointing toward. Jesus proclaimed to her the superiority of Jewish worship as a form because it was based on commandments of God as well as on more extensive revelation than the Samaritans accepted. The worship of the Samaritans was built upon that which Jeroboam had instituted when he drove out all the Levites and he established places to worship there and he established sacrifices on the basis of his own authority. And that's the reason she says, we worship in this mountain. We worship in this place. <clears throat> and then Jesus claims that it is only the Jews who know <clears throat> excuse me, what true worship is because Jeroboam had constructed a man-made worship that was alternate to that which God had commanded. 
But those forms, he said, not only the false form that the Samaritans had, but even the true form under the old covenant that the Jews had would give way and they were to be fulfilled in Christ who was standing before her. Worship would now be in any place, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's based upon this uh, particular idea that the Second London Confession in one of its notes says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. But he also said that which is fundamental to this, that not only is Jewish worship superior, and not only though are these forms now perished, but worship is to be in spirit and in truth. Now the word spirit certainly includes an, an alteration of the, of the human spirit, a change in affections in which we adore God, we worship God, it's the, the resistance, the rebellion is, is gone away. Uh, but I think that primarily in light of what he's talking about and the, the emphasis we have in John, he's talking about the institution of the new covenant by the Spirit of God. And so when he says that we worship in spirit and in truth, when he says spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's operation of drawing people to worship. First of all, by regeneration. You must be born of the Spirit. Second, by gifting. Uh, to each is given the mani manifestation for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, as, as, as how worship operates in light of the whole body. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, which is given through the Spirit. Also, the Spirit empowers corporate transformation through worship. Paul, arguing in 1 Corinthians, says, talks about building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then again, and, and thus in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, So with ourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So even in the age when there were these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, the purpose was something that was more lasting than those extraordinary gifts, and that was the building up of the church. So again, that is a, that is a goal that you have in corporate worship. <clears throat> what does it mean to worship by truth? Well, in <clears throat> John chapter 17, Jesus talks about truth, and I think the two things that he mentions there, what he has in mind in John 4 when he says in spirit and in truth. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, clearly one meaning he has when he says your word is truth is the objective truth of the word of God. Worship is to be done according to what scripture says. Uh, we worship in spirit and in truth. We worship according to every word of God, understood, perceived correctly within its context. But when he says here in this text, I consecrate myself, 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. What Jesus is talking about is that he has come to earth in order to bring to pass all of those things that were predicted of the Messiah. He has come to bring to pass everything that is involved in reconciling his people to himself. It is by his death and resurrection. He sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart unto the death on the cross for which the Father sent him. He was determined. And the context of this prayer is, is that all, all those you have given me, I've lost none of them. Uh, the Father has given these to me, and I consecrate myself in order to save all those that the Father has given me. So he's talking about the completion of all of the prophecies. That to worship in spirit then means that we, uh, we worship by the regenerative and gifting work of the spirit. To worship in truth means we do it according to the word of God. <coughs> But we also do it in accordance with the fulfillment that, that, the, that the scripture has been fulfilled. The prophecies have been fulfilled. Truth as the clear manifestation, fulfillment, and consummation of all that has been promised. And so we understand why John talks about Jesus being full of grace and truth. He says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He told Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose came I into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now that is, again, the, the fulfillment that he will bring to pass, the reason he does not uh, call upon people to save him or call upon angels to save him is because it was for their very purpose that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, and so he, uh, he brings to pass the truth in his on life. He is the one who said it is finished. He is the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so we worship in spirit and in truth. The operations of the spirit and all that he does in, uh, in effecting the new covenant, the work of Christ and all that he does in fulfilling the reconciling purpose of God. Uh, and that is set forth as a principle that has to govern our worship. Consistently be thinking about what that means as you come to the time of corporate worship and even as you engage in your personal worship. So then in the John 4 passage, this change in worship was focused on Jesus as Messiah, chapter 4, 26, who says, I who speak to you am he. Then we actually see then in the New Testament how this focus is so clear. Paul <clears throat> says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, just a few verses later, he says, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. 1 Timothy 3.16, one of the confessions of the church says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so this idea of the completion of what Christ has done is fundamental, it's essential uh, to the way that we go about uh, seeking involvement in our corporate worship experiences. Those are principles. Now let's look just a little bit at the New Testament practice. One thing that we know that they did was they assembled, they came together. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Paul says in Ephesians, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's as a part of the corporate experience. Uh, in the, really the very first part of the second century as heresy was threatening the church, one of the major apostolic writers, Ignatius, 
saw the unity of the church and the assembling themselves together as one of the chief means by which people would protect themselves from, from false teachers. Uh, he, he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, let no one be misled, for if anyone is not within the sanctuary, he lacks the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two has such power, how much more that of the bishop together with the whole church? Therefore, whoever does not meet with the congregation thereby demonstrates his arrogance and has separated himself, for it is written, God opposes uh, the arrogant. I can go it alone. I don't need the rest of the body. And of course, Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 12. Sell the foot, say to the hand, I don't, because I'm not the hand, I don't need the hand, I don't need the body. So the, the concept of, of corporate worship is not just a tradition. It's not something we just try to uh, create crises of conscience so we can get people together and control them or give their money or something. It's a biblical principle that we are strengthened by one another and that there's a way in which we learn truth and apply truth in a more profound way when we're doing it together and we have fellowship around the truth. The second thing they did was pray. No one needs to be convinced of this. Uh, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us, Paul says, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We urge you, brothers, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? In 1 Timothy 2, first of all, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Uh, so plenty of admonitions throughout the New Testament, examples of prayers in public worship. A third thing that is mandated is Bible reading. 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Uh, then in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer is writing this book and he wants it to be read to the entire congregation because he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Well, Hebrews, <laughs> I don't know what he means by briefly there because it take a long time. But nevertheless, that's, uh, it, it took a long time to read the letter, but he expected them to read it. And he told them to bear with this word of exhortation. Of course, you look at the writings of Paul, and, uh, Philippians and Ephesians, where he tells them, like the letter that comes from Laodicea, make sure that it's read in the congregation. So, so the reading of Scripture was something that was an important element of New Testament worship. Obviously, proclamation. 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up uh, uh, and he understands, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He told Timothy also, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Then also praise through singing and through other forms of vocal unison. I think this is one of the things that is, I, I hope and is coming back in worship. I know when I was growing up, we always used to have a responsive reading. Uh, then they just dropped out. They were seen as being too formal. And some of the responsive readings that were at the back of the, the Broadman hymnal, which I, I grew up with at that time, 
uh, were on subject matters, and for the most part, I think they were pretty, pretty well with a good context, but sometimes there would be scriptures that would just sort of uh, mesh together that were contextually perhaps uh, not as coherent as they seemed to be in the responsive readings. But nevertheless, the responsive reading uh, for me, just as a kid, was, a, was an important time to hear everyone saying those same words together. And I think this is making a comeback now in the reading of Scripture. And I believe this is mandated uh, in Scripture, where Paul says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your, uh, all of your hearts to the Lord. And then again in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, it's a Christocentric service, and it involves a unison speaking of things so that everyone is saying the same thing, agreeing with these, these things, uh, and they are singing together. Again, First uh, Corinthians, Paul says, I will, I will praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. In Hebrews 13, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So I think that in, in, involves both recitation of scripture or confessions. Uh, some of the confessions I think we have in the New Testament that they were, they were recited in these worship services and obviously it involves singing. And then giving is another thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, in the same way, that is, like the Levites received gifts from Israel coming in to offer sacrifices, that the Levites lived off of that. Paul says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Galatians 6, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And then again, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. This is 3 John, where John is commending a person for giving and sending on their way people that he did not know, but came with high recommendations from the apostles. Uh, and this, to me, is a biblical foundation for things we try to do in Southern Baptist life with cooperative program and other mission groups that try to collect funds from various groups to send out people on mission. Listen to what John says in 3 John verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Uh, so giving was, a, was a, an expected part of the corporate worship experience as well as an individual part of stewardship. Then there are the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, many proofs of this, and the, the, I'd like to spend some time with it, but I, I want, but we... We need to recognize that both of these, again, are pointing us to the completed work of Christ. 
the, we, we see the triune God operating uh, in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, where, where Paul ties this in with spiritual worship in 1 Corinthians when he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, he is talking there, of course, about the baptism of the Spirit at the point of conversion where we are, where we are in, in a sense, spiritually immersed into the one body of the, the elect of God. But he also is talking about the reality of physical baptism, that there is an operation, that this operation of the Spirit of God in the same way that there is the operation of Christ, objectively, historically outside of us, we are placed in Christ by the Spirit of God, and both the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit then is symbolized in... Uh, our baptism. Uh, and so when he's talking about this, he is, uh, I believe Paul has in mind both of these things. That baptism is a symbol of union with Christ that is affected by the Spirit in the new covenant operations of the Spirit. So these things are, are pointing us to Christ. They're always accompanied by the word of explanation. And these are the uh, warranted proclamations of the gospel through symbol and drama. Then the Lord's Supper uh, is also uh, mandated in Scripture, as you well know. And then uh, the last thing that I want to mention in, in this is that there is the need for decency and order. Uh, all of these elements must be done in such a way as does not create confusion, does not create misunderstanding, <clears throat> that it is available for everyone to grasp and to see the beauty and the symmetry uh, that is involved in what it means to worship God. After giving specific guidelines for the appropriate execution of the supper and the public execution of extraordinary spiritual gifts in the worship at Corinth, Paul wrote, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, a, a third aspect of the stewardship we have in worship is that it must be informed by the development of Christian doctrine must be informed by the development of Christian doctrine. The Bible is rich and full, and it explains many more things than we would ever be able to discover in this lifetime, as I've mentioned. And so it takes us sometimes decades and centuries to understand one basic truth. It's not that it's unclear in Scripture. It's just that we find so many ways of perverting it, so many ways of putting clouds around it, that it takes a lot of work for us finally to come up with words that clarify a doctrine and set it before us in a way that it must be proclaimed. That is what has happened in the development of doctrine throughout the history of the church. So I just want to point out just basic ideas that are contained within these different uh, confessions, these historic confessions. And my point in this is to try to press upon you uh, the reality that since these things were hard to understand, in the immediate first centuries that the vocabulary that was developed sometimes had the tendency to error and that the church through its discussion has developed a kind of vocabulary that both uh, glorifies and, and, and gives uh, accurate presentation of the biblical material and also is edifying to the soul that we should do everything we can uh, to duplicate the kind of language that was used within these historic epitomes of doctrine. 
For example, the Apostles' Creed. This affirms the historic life of Christ in his true humanity, and it was written in the context of Gnostics who denied his true humanity. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. He rose from the dead, he, and so forth. And so all of these things, make sure we go through the kerygma, make sure we are affirming plainly these things that really happened in the person of Christ in his humanity that are necessary for our redemption. Then the Nicene Creed affirms the eternal sonship of Christ and affirms certain things that were necessary to be made, at least at that time, uh, that seal the idea that anyone who denies the deity of Christ, seeks to compromise on the reality that he is the eternal son of God, is not worshiping the Christ of Scripture. And so you have these phrases, uh, begotten, not made, of the nature of the Father, of the same essence with the Father, was made flesh, was made man, true God of true God, and so forth. Uh, So this was a uh, very historic moment in the history of doctrine. The Constantinopolitan Creed restated Nicaea, but a controversy had come up again about the human nature of Christ, so it reaffirms the human nature, the true human nature of Christ, but also the deity of the Holy Spirit. There's very interesting phrases added to the Creed at that time, <clears throat> just several phrases about the Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. So you see the part worship plays in the teaching of this doctrine, as it did with Basil of of Caesarea, pointed out that we worship, that our doxologies are related to this, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Then Chalcedon, of course, sets forth the full deity, the full humanity, uh, all cohering in one person, Uh, the distinction of natures not being lost by the unity in the person. Then Reformation confessions uh, come along with very uh, powerful doctrine, uh, doctrinal uh, corrections that were needed, uh, doctrinal purifications that were needed, so the doctrine of justification by faith that focuses on forgiveness of sins and eternal life by the full righteousness of Christ, the doctrine of the finality of the work of Christ, and thus a Christ-centered worship in which we find the glory of the Trinity. Again, the Second London Confession says, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So you can read into that rejection of the saints, rejection of relics, rejection of of Mary as a as a co-mediatrix and any of those things. So again, the focus on Christ. Now I want to close, and I'll I'll try to make this as as pungent and as brief as possible because Dr. Crowder has got some marvelous things that we need to get to. There are three interacting but cooperative tensions uh, in the forming of a worship service, it seems to me, as we reflect on these things above. Uh, Throughout the, the history of Christianity, uh, the need for excuse me the need for liturgy has been has been seen. This has been seen most uh, clearly, and perhaps uh, even uh, to a degree in which they've corrupted some elements of the worship of God. But nevertheless, clearly seen in Roman Catholicism and in Anglicanism, to a lesser degree than in Lutheranism, and to a lesser degree in Presbyterianism, uh, and then the Free Church movement has been pretty uh, uh, vacant of of 
anything that approached a liturgical kind of uh, worship. Uh, but I think that the, the corporate witness of the church, the need for order, uh, shows that there is order and decency, there's beauty, there's symmetry, and there's rhythm that helps people begin to identify and that is an educational experience in itself. I mean, how many times coming up did I sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. By the time I got to college, no one could convince me that there was anything that could wash away my sins but the blood of Jesus and that I really did have sins that needed to be washed away because I sang that hymn a thousand times and I was convinced that everyone that was singing it believed it and had experienced it. And so as simple as it was, it was teaching me a profound truth that was uh, very helpful to me. So we, so we need that kind of rhythm and symmetry that continues to, to mold us. There's been a great revival in liturgical studies in Roman Catholicism, and there have been some good things in that because they've seen liturgy as a primary means to instruct people in the true meaning of faith and life and the best source for the nourishment in the faith. Now, they try to teach some of their errors in that, of course, but the principle that they set forth, I think, is a true principle. Uh, some of this was sparked by... The Protestantism is also engaged in the recovery of liturgy, and some of this was influenced perhaps by the ecumenical movement, but also had increased sacramental overtones to it. But also some of it was simply sparked by efforts to escape the casualness, the apparent irreverence, unsettling lack of form, sometimes pure foolishness engendered by worship practice in non-liturgical uh, free churches. Uh, where there is <clears throat> the, the form and order is something that is, that is not instructive, that does not create that, that ongoing rhythm that, that convinces us of the truth of certain assertions that we all are making together over and over again. So I've tried to get a definition of liturgy. I have that for you there. Uh, I'm going to try this out. <clears throat> liturgy is a formal structure given to corporate worship to bring the body to worship the triune God through the finished work of Jesus Christ by organizing epitomes of divine truth and mandated practices in a way most conducive to instruction in the word, adoration of God, proclamation of the gospel, and sanctification of the whole body of believers. So that's one part of the tension, is the need for liturgy. The second part of the tension is the principle of sola scriptura. And it is well, the fact that scripture seemed to be fit within a box that made many people in the free church tradition reject liturgy. And even as good as something like the Book of Common Prayer is, and the elevated uh, prose that is in it, and the number of scriptures you actually read through during, during a year, uh, nevertheless, those who wanted more freedom within Scripture and wanted to have a larger instruct, instructive parameters, such as the Puritan movement, rejected the Book of Common Prayer as being too constricting. So there's a, there's a general Protestant commitment to the principle of sola scriptura to get away from popes, councils, tradition, formality that has no instruction, uh, the dominant influence of liturgical forms that were not in the language of the people and were more consistent with canon law than with, than with the dynamic power of scripture. So there were many reasons why these liturgical forms were seen as, as opposed to the principle of sola scriptura. 
And of course, this is a specifically Baptist commitment that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Uh, and with other things about that we could talk about. But the third part of this tension then is an application of the principle of sola scriptura that was more prominent within the Reformed movement of the Reformation than it was in the Lutheran movement or what became the, the Methodist movement. Uh, <clears throat> that is the regulative principle. Now, the Second London Confession, paragraph one says, uh, um, under uh, one of its... Uh, in one of its articles, says the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul. So that's the light of nature in man. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So these, uh, these three things, in, in my mind, constitute the, uh, those uh, tests by which we discern if we are worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Uh, what is the manner, therefore? What is the manner of worship or a theory of constructing corporate worship that will respect the need for order, generate the greatest response to the word, protect us from our tendency to create idols of our own thoughts and creativity, and always points to the worship of God through Christ? So that's the point at which, in my experience, I haven't seen a better answer than what Dr. Crider has given. <laughs> Thank you. So as as you've gotten this uh, this theological foundation, let's turn to more of a of a practical. What we talked about earlier today in a, in a session is that our theology informs our philosophy, which informs our methodology. There are way too many people out there leading worship who have never thought about what they're doing theologically in the songs that they sing, in the ways that they do worship, in the transition statements that they make. So from this point, we look at these foundational truths and we, when we, and we, we begin for this part, which is more, more of, a, of a methodology, basically. But let's start with the problem. And my, my contention, or my, my point, and my, my concern is is that many worship leaders don't realize the formational nature of corporate worship. Mike Cosper said in his book, Rhythms of Grace, and I quote it right here, as we plan and order our services, discerning the content to include, we shape the beliefs and devotional lives of our church members. It's a crazy pastoral opportunity if you think about it. My question for you is, do you fully realize, do we fully realize as worship leaders that people's concept of God is often formed and probably mostly formed in a lot of people's lives by the way we sculpt, by the way we deliver, and by the way we lead them in worship. I don't know about you, but, but the stewardship of what we do just grew immensely in, in, that, in that reality. Chuck Lewis, Dr. Chuck Lewis did, a, did his dissertation uh, about a year, finished his dissertation about a year ago, and he surveyed, he sent, he sent surveys to 500 worship leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention and, and, and of the 500 largest churches. 
when we do when we do quantitative research like that, we're fortunate to get 10, 10 to 15% responses. There must have been something in those worship leaders that we really wanted them to be a part of it because we got over a 50% response. 270 worship leaders responded to his to his his survey and the information from that survey. And what he found was this, and it's startling, but this is this is from his dissertation. 60% of the worship leaders in those churches do not use do not use scripture within the music portion of their worship services. I just want to let that sink in for a second. 60%. Yes. I mean reading it. I mean having the congregation read it. I mean having I mean it just using scripture of of any kind. So I'm so the concern is also as we look at this problem, worship leaders don't really seem to realize what's at stake on Sunday mornings. My contention is along with AW Tozier that what's at stake on Sunday mornings is people's view of God. And just to just to just to that quote there I have for you is basically that 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 uh, that Tozer says that the gravest question before the church is always God Himself, and the most pretentious fact about any man is not what any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. On the next page, John Stott says all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises on our reflection on who he is and what he has done. The worship of God is invoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. Now, what's the reality of these things? What's the re- we, we see the problem, right? We, we, see that we don't really realize what it is we're doing. We're putting words in people's mouths for them to respond to the God of the universe, the one who created them. What, are we, what, are we, what words are we putting in their mouths? Not only just in the songs that we sing, but the prayers that we pray and the things that happen during a worship service. So the reality, many worship services are song-driven. They're not scripture-driven. Listen, I'm, I can only speak like this because I've, I'm there with you. I've been doing this for 35 years. And I can tell you that there were often times I'd go through, what haven't we sung recently? Hey, that's in that key. What other tune do I have in that key that's got the same feel and the same tempo that we can go into it? And there? Oh, yeah, that's a good key. Cool. Well, let's change the key of this one so we can make... I mean, I'm there. I'm there with you on, on, on having that kind of a thought. What haven't we done for a while? And, and really thinking of it, thinking of the music for the service rather than what's the scripture that's guiding our service. If many people need to have a liturgy explained to them, I'm not sure, even if they've used it for years, perhaps there's been more trust placed in the liturgy than is biblically warranted. Look, the liturgy doesn't save us. The gospel saves, right? I mean, I'm concerned that sometimes we're getting so into this liturgy thing that that we're thinking, okay, this is going to be the answer. Well, there are great things about liturgies. I'm not not dismissing the importance of, of already, you know, the the common book of prayer and those things like that. I, please don't hear me say that, but I'm just thinking, if we have to explain to our people what they're doing, I, I'm, there, there's something that's not real reformational about that to me, right? We could go on and on on that one. I need to go on. 
Dr. Nettles and I were having lunch the other day together, and we were talking about this, and he said something that just really stuck with me. Listen, our people, you and me, we are dependent on divine revelation. We are dependent on it. So why wouldn't we sculpt our worship orders using, using the Word of God to do that? And then D, God's revelation is as vital during the musical worshipful point. And obviously, I'm thinking that worship, that the worship service is all of worship. So don't hear me, don't hear me disconnect the preaching from worship, okay? But the musical worship side, and as it is in the message, through the songs that we sing, through the transition statements we make, through the prayers that are prayed, and through the testimonies given. Dr. Moeller, when he was when he was preaching yesterday, and he was talking, he was talking about about the, the importance of prayers. I think our prayers at LaGrange Baptist Church is I've watched our staff guys pray. I think our prayers are their their prayers are more well informed and well directed and more scriptural because they're praying through the lens and through the grid of scripture. I don't know if you've felt that as well. It is it is it is amazing and it's like Don Whitney's book on praying through the Bible. It is a very similar concept with that. And I'm flying through these things, but and we'll, and we'll look at some specifics. I think if someone would say to me, what do you think are the essentials of a worship service? What, what do you think are the essentials of a worship service? And these five things that I want to talk to you about are all explicitly and implicitly derived from Scripture itself. So these, these five principles are things that we already see in Scripture. And that they are the things that in Scripture already informs us of. So if we look at these, number one, worship includes God's revelation and response. That if you if you haven't, you need to listen to Ron Mann's talk on on God on Jesus being the worship leader through Hebrews two, and and hear his discussion of revelation and response. It, it is powerful. And so when you get when these go online, make sure you listen to Ron Mann's. I'm not going to spend much more time on it. But I think that, 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 that the rhythm of worship, if someone were to ask me what my definition of worship was, a part of that definition is, not the whole thing, but a part of it is, that, is that, that, that worship is, is the rhythm of God's revelation and our response. God's revelation and our response. So, so I think that corporate worship, one of the things that has to be included that's essential is this idea of God's revelation. And it, and it certainly certainly stands on all the scripture that you've just heard from Dr. Nettles, beginning with, 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 with the, the woman at the well in, in John's passage. Number two, worship includes celebrating God's transcendence and his imminence. And I think it's in that order. As we just said, and as, Tozer, as we looked at the Tozer quote, what's the most important thing about people is what they believe about God. So what's at stake on Sunday morning is people's view of who God is. So how are we, in addition to the songs that we sing, how are we helping people to, to recalibrate their view of who God is? How are we helping them to form their view of who God is? And I believe, that can we do it in any other way better than the Word of God that has given us the divine revelation that we're all dependent on? So in, in, in thinking about that, we see that we see that we begin like in so many passages of scripture that we could talk about, but we, we, we begin with God first. It's, it's Boswell's, you know, Boswell's whole, um, uh, if, you, if, if you talk to Matt about, okay, what's your, what's your liturgy look like? God, man, Christ, response, right? It begins with God. 
And if it begins with God, then we see God's transcendence. We see him, his otherness, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, his, you know, all those things. But we also see that, that he transcends as well. There's an imminence about him too. One of the things that Chuck Lewis did in his dissertation and, and, and in, the, in the surveys is how much time do you spend at the beginning of a worship service helping people see God for who he is? That's the Isaiah model, right? Isaiah goes into the throne room and he sees the train of his robe filling the temple and he is, ama- he is absolutely blown away by the vision of who God is. And then what does he do? He says what? Woe is me. It's, it's God, man. It's the reality of who God is first. I was in a worship service on the East Coast of the United States. And for the first 20 minutes, I am not kidding when I say this. This, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I am not making this up. For the first 20 minutes of that worship service, we sang these words. I am a friend of God. I am a friend. For 20 minutes, we sang it. At the very beginning of the worship service. What's the first word? I. It's about me. There's this, there's in modern worship, there's this incredible, there's this incredible pull to make me the center of the worship. To make me the one that, oh God, you feel so great about me. This is amazing. I am the center of this. Thank you for making me feel so good about myself. When we begin with God, we do not feel good about ourselves. When we begin with who He is and His holiness and His perfectionist and His perfection and His righteousness. We sit and say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips as well. If we, if we start with eminence every service, if we start with, with God's love for us and, and, great, and those things, then you know what? Grace ceases to be so amazing. When we begin with who he is, and we've, we've, we've celebrated that and we've sung it and we've reminded our people of who he is. Then we get to the point that says, your sins are, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus has been, has been that has been given for you in grace. And you think, God, this is amazing. It is amazing grace. So do you see that rhythm there as well? It's the rhythm. It's this rhythm of God's revelation and our response. It's this rhythm of God's transcendence moving to his eminence. And then there's this idea of, of, the, of, the, of the, the arc of the gospel, that we proclaim and we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think worship services can be so easily ordered that way as you look at Scripture and you allow Scripture to guide you. The next one is, it includes the reality and the balance of the already and not yet. Matt Westerholm, that's another one that you're going to want to listen to if you didn't go to it earlier today. This, this, this balance of the already and the not yet. So that's, that's as, as we look at it, inaugurated eschatology, or, right? So what Matt did in his dissertation from, from here is that he looked at he looked at hymnody and American hymnody throughout the centuries and found that there was a wonderful balance of the already and the not yet through hymnody throughout throughout the history of American hymnody until you look at the the last part of the the 20th century the 19 you know 1990s 80s 90s and then the 2000 he took the hymns he took the top CCLI tunes from 2000 to 2015 guess what what was it almost all yeah, it's all the already. All of it is the already. The top CCLI tunes, I think there's like 87 he looked at. 
Some of you were in that session probably, right? Was anybody in that session? Like there were almost none. I mean, like there's eight. And those were all about Jesus' death, right? The only one that he found in, the, in the, any of them was 10,000 reasons. And on that day when my, what is it? Something. Strength is failing. Yeah. One song about, about the reality of who we are, who we are in, the, in the already not yet. Again, I, I, I rush, but, but you, you see what I'm saying there. There's a rhythm of that as well. And then there's also this rhythm, I think, of the vertical response to God, the dialogic, but also this, horrible, this horizontal dynamic of edifying and encouraging the saints was what Dr. Moeller talked about yesterday at the end on the, on the idea of the, of, the, of, the, of the benediction, is that, yes, we ask God to bless us, but we also, we also want to be a blessing to one another. So my, my, my proposal to you today is this. I am not saying this is the only way to sculpt worship. Please don't hear me say that. I'm saying it, it is a way. It is a way that, that I've done over the last many years, but very specifically over the last year and a half as I've been at LaGrange Baptist Church, really intentionally, and I can't, I can't imagine it doing it any other way. I, I'm not saying it is the only way. I'm just saying for us and for me, I can't imagine it doing other way. So scripture-guided worship, the Word provides the foundational aspects of not only the structure, but also, also the content. So what does that mean? What do I mean by the ideas of structure? I've given you 14 general structures that churches use, all right? There's the random structure. Hey, dude, what are we doing today? <laughs> yeah, well, what do you feel like? Well, I don't know. Let's try this one. Okay, we'll just let the Spirit lead into the next one. Great, cool. Hope the guy on the PowerPoint knows what he's doing. All right, yeah. There's the blank slate structure. Literally, you're trying to come up with something creative every week. You're looking at a blank slate. So many times I get those little deals in the mail. Do you guys get, do you guys get the, the things in the mail that say, um, hey, here's a new, here's, here's, a, here's a, a worship program or a worship class you can come to or go on to online? Are you, you know, are you tired of looking at the blank page in front of you? Okay, there's the thematic structure, or some people call it the golden, the golden thread structure. It might be the pastor speaking on a very specific topic that day, and we really want all of the worship that day to be on that particular theme. That's, that's legitimate. I think if you've got those five essentials up there with it, do it. I mean, those five essentials, I think, are really key for us. I just think that Scripture does it for you anyway. When you use, those five, when you use Scripture, they're, they're inherent in those. Real quickly, the third one, or fourth one, fill in the blank structure. Hey, if you use Planning Center, that's real easy to do. What did we do last week? Oh, put a new hymn there, put a new song there, put a new chorus there. Oh, who's praying? Put it in there. Good. Got that one? Good. Fill in the blank. It's called other known, wise known as the plug and chug method, right? Okay. Then there's the prescribed method. So I think... um, as as we've Zach Hicks, I think that would probably be on the on um, from the using the the common book of prayer, the missal or the lectionary, or, or the common book of prayer, the dialogical structure. Uh, if you're familiar with um, Constance Cherry, uh, who wrote the Worship Architect, which I would recommend to you as an excellent book, um, uh, that that I believe that she would she would certainly promote the dialogical structure, a fourfold order structure, the Isaiah structure. You all know what that is. Uh, the worship journey structure. Here's the worship journey structure. Outer courts to inner courts. Anybody ever hear of it? Or tabernacle model? 
Yeah, so you're you're out in the tab or you're out in the outer courts and gathering songs up tempo. The closer you get to the holy of holies, the quieter you get, and they're ready. You're ready to kiss Jesus with a sloppy wet kiss or something. I'm not sure what about or about that. If it has those five areas of essentials, I think we're cool. But here's the problem with that. The only thing that I would say in that particular structure, just be really careful because there, the the only way, the only usher. The only usher to, our pre- to, to, to God's presence is Christ Jesus and his, and his death and resurrection. I mean, he, he is the only one that gets us there, right? There, there's, there's no some kind of great guitar lick that somehow gets us into the presence of God. There's, there's, no, there's no human person ushering me to, to God's presence. Through Christ, I'm there already, right? I mean, what's that? I, I don't, anyway, that, I won't go on in that one. Historically, liturgical structure, a neo-liturgical structure. That would be somewhat, if, you, if you're familiar with, with sojourn, um, the gospel outline structure, free form, free church. Um, so those are all a part of, of, of those structures. But what I'm, what I'm proposing to you, and we'll show you here in just a minute, is that scripture-guided worship is a weekly worship built on a specific passage of scripture. And here's the deal that I think is helpful for me at least. That particular scripture provides not only the structural elements, it also provides the content. So it provides not only the structure, but it also provides the content. So flip that over real quickly. And here are some characteristics that I, that I think are, are helpful. Uh, and this is un, under section five. In addition to those five essentials that I listed earlier, number one, is I think, I think what happens when we use scripture to guide our worship, it, it, the, the idea of spiritual formation. Listen, nothing we say as worship leaders from our own experience or standing up there babbling or standing up there saying stupid things, none of that compares to what the word of God does in shaping people's hearts. How many of you have ever heard a worship leader ramble? How many of you have ever heard a worship, a worship leader say really stupid things between two songs? How many of you have ever heard a worship, server, worship leader just pray because it's, it's functional between two items of a worship service? People are formulating their perceptions and conceptions of God through the lens of our liturgies. Why wouldn't we use the word to do that? Even if you end up not using the worship, if you, listen, even if you do not use scripture to guide your worship when you walk out of this room, I hope you will hear a passion from Tom Nettles and Joe Kreider to please use the word of God in your, in your services. To please, please use the public proclamation of scripture in your services. To let it be the central, Christ, obviously, but to let that be the, the pointing to it. The second thing is, um, the tri- idea of transformational impact. One of the things that you, you, you've got to think about as a worship leader is what's the, what is the litmus test of effective corporate worship? You, you have some people say, man, people were really going at it today. Man, the hands were raised. It really felt, and that can be, that can be general, a, a, a decent litmus test of some things. An administrator might say, dude, we had a great offering. Wonderful. You know, someone else might have said, wow, the, the worship service was packed today. I want to propose to you that I really feel like the litmus test of effective worship is life change. And how we see that is getting to know our people. 
not just our people in our worship ministries, but getting to know our people in the congregations. Are their lives being changed? That's, I think, a litmus test of, of effective worship. You see some ideas there, the Romans 12, uh, 1 through 3, and 2 Corinthians. We want people's lives to be transformed uh, in that. And the third one is transitional clarity. Scripture-guided worship has a way of helping us chart our course with intentional, meaningful transitions. That's for the worship leader. That's for us. That's also for others who are participating in the worship. And that's also for the congregation. They know that the guide in the room is not some guy standing up there trying to, trying to take him through a worship order. They know, looking at their bulletin or looking at the screens, wow, this is the scripture that's taking us through this. I'm being guided by the word of God through this. This next one is a supernatural connection with a diverse congregation. There are more generations in our churches right now than there ever have been in the past. I think there are five generations in our churches right now. So people, people from those different generations, they receive, they process, and they, and they, they respond to information differently. My mother is 92 years old. If I went to my mother and I said, would you like to hear, see the evening news on the television? Would you like me to get my iPad out? Or would you like the newspaper? What is my 92-year-old mother going to say? The newspaper. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have all these different ways of generationally people receiving, processing, and responding to information. And it's even worse with the younger generation, with the digitized generation, all those things. What I want to proclaim to you is, is that the Word of God does not die in that area. It transcends those things. It transcends time. It transcends culture. We use the Word of God. We don't have to be slick. We don't have to have the coolest videos. We don't have to have the coolest fog machines. You probably wouldn't be at this conference if you thought that anyway. But, the, but my point is, is that when we use the Word of God, it is the unifying agent between the children. You look at a two-year-old and say, do you want to hear a story? That two-year-old just say, yes. You want to look at a, a, a 92-year-old and say, can I tell you a story? The 92-year-old's going to listen. And that's the story of the gospel. So we hold in our hands a resource that through the Spirit of God does bridge and can engage a diverse engagement with, pe with people of all ages on a weekly basis. And then there's the idea of this gospel as a story. And the next one is, music is subservient to the text. The word is placed in its proper and rightful position. Harold Best likes to say this, music is a great servant, but a horrible master. When you use music, when music is what's just pushing everything you do, guess, who's, guess what's controlling your worship? Yeah. And I know I'm going a little bit over, so anybody who may need to leave right now, I, I promise I won't be offended at all. So please, please don't, don't, don't hesitate to leave if you need to. The next one is, I, I think that we spend a little too much time sometimes trying to fit scripture in between songs instead of utilizing the songs to rip the scripture off the page so that people are actually responding to it. And then the last thing is creativity. When you, when you guide, when you order worship through, through, the, through the word of God, you're never, ever, ever going to look at a blank page again. Ever. You look at the Word of God. And can I just tell you something? There is no better place to be as a worship leader than the Word of God and to be soaking yourself in it. And there's no better way to start a rehearsal with your people than to stand in front of them and say, tonight the scripture that's going to guide our worship and that we're going to focus on as we rehearse tonight is this one. Let's look at it, let's pray over it, and then let's get ready to rehearse it. And as we sing the songs, and as we, as we look at the transitions and the scriptures, as we, look at the, as we look at the response of readings, 
you will see where it comes out from the scripture. All right. Now, let me just take you through a couple of these orders real fast. If you have questions, I'd love to be able to answer them and you can, you can take off as well. This happens to be September 4th. We, we on that. Uh, so if you've got that, that's September 4th right there. This was a, a, a series that our pastors did in 2 Corinthians. So I basically took, took 2 Corinthians in this particular pastor, uh, passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9, and I looked at it and said, okay, as I looked through the passages, I'm thinking, okay, I want to follow those five. I wanna, I'm thinking about the five, those five elements that we talked about earlier as I'm, as I'm looking at these passages. And every single week, I am amazed at, at how the gospel is shaped through that and how those ideas of transcendence and imminence, how the ideas of revelation response, and also how the ideas of even prayers of confession go through this as well. So at the beginning, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of service, I just simply stood up. We sang, How Marvelous is a Welcome. And I simply stood up and said, Good morning. It's so welcome to LaGrange Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here this morning. The scripture that guides our worship this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. At the beginning of chapter 8, in verse 9, you'll hear these words from Paul. For you know the grace of our Lord, Je Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. You sing, "All hail the power of Jesus' name." You see that place in that in the in the text that responds ex or that re relates exactly to that idea of, of of Jesus Christ. But I also want them to sense the the idea of His transcendence. All hail the power of Jesus' name as well. And then we sang, "Sang to the King." Then the next phrase in that same passage: "Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor." Pastor Ryan gets up. And, he real, and I have just that little note under there. The king we've just sung about became poor for our sake. His perfect life for our sinful life. And he prayed through that and prayed on that. And then we sang that rejoice. And we also uh, used a, 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 a confession script, scripture in there. That's the Dustin Kensrue uh, rejoice song that I think we did even the other night. And then we came back with that, how, how marvelous. So that by his poverty, you may become rich. Pastor uh, Rick uh, used that as a transition into the a pastoral prayer and then also the offering. And then Pastor Tony's fo focus was, so now finish the work. And it guided all aspects of that. Okay, just flip over to the next one real quickly. Uh, September 11. This one, we're still in the Second Corinthians series, but I was looking for a psalm. In other words, what I want to say to you is that you, there are thousands and thousands of worship orders in the scriptures. I'll give you a real quick example. If you'll look at uh, Daniel 9, if you get a Bible, look at Daniel 9 real quickly. I want to just show you that, that this happened this week. So go to Daniel and go to Daniel 9. This is Pastor Tony at LaGrange Baptist Church. Uh, before he, he really felt compelled that before this election, he needed to take our people through Daniel. Daniel 9. This is the passage that he's preaching. We looked at it and he said, Joe, check out the prayer in Daniel 9. I said, great. Look at, look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And I'm looking at the HCSB right here, the Holman. But it, ah, Lord God, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We're using the first part of that. This is this coming week. 
We're using the first part of that, Ah, Lord God, the great and awe-inspiring God. That's the first part of our worship right there. We're singing those songs that are great and awe-inspiring that remind us of that. The next phrase, who keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Then look at this next part. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away from your commands and ordinance. We've not listened to yours. What is that? Yeah, yeah. It's laid out. You're never looking at a blank sheet ever again. So I just wanted to show you that. And and a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I used used the proclamation of Darius, a a pagan king. But it did the same thing. And it was amazing to be able to say that to the congregation. This morning, our worship was guided by by this phrase from, from Daniel. By the way, he was a pagan king who knew this about the God of the universe. And this is what he said. And it's in our scripture. But it was, it was an absolute perfect thing to guide us through there. So, but what we also use on days, I use an enormous amount of the Psalms because they work so Lord, look so, look so well. Look at this one real quickly on September 11. Psalm 5 we used. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you in watch. In the morning. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What's the next phrase? Yeah, the, the, the scripture points to the songs as well. So many songs are scripture based, right? So, and we could have used many. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise. I mean, there are a lot of ways that this points to and informs what we use. This is our God. And then, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Guess what? Those are the next verses. What does it point to? Thank you. Confession. I didn't know if that was being really... uh, Yeah, thank you. So, Pastor Cam gets up. This is a great opportunity for us to show the people the rhythm of the gospel in our worship. We worship a holy God, perfect, just, and righteous. And when we see him, we also see ourselves for who we are, sinful and boastful. So I'm just in, the, in this, and our staff, Cam and Ryan and Rick and Tony and our elders, they love this. They said, I'm never going up to pray thinking, okay, wh- where do I head on this? Because what they will say, Pastor Cam will stand up and say, the next phrase in this psalm is this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful not, shall not stand before your eyes. May make a short commentary on that and go into a prayer using that. We're not trying to... It takes us out of the, it takes us out of the, the spotlight of this and it, and, it, and it allows the scripture to speak. And, and those five essentials are through all of these. But for, through your abundance, your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down to your temple. In the fear of you, lead me, Lord. Pastor Rick comes up. We, we sang the, the holy hands and um, not what I, not, have you done that, holy hands? Boy, that's a great, it's an old Horatio Bonner hymn that's been retuned. Uh, City hymns did it really, really well. It's a great song. It's a great hymn. Pastor Rick, so he did this for, uh, just as assurance of salvation, Look, I'm not, I'm not putting assurance of pardon in here. Not that our people would have a problem with it, but, but the scripture does it. And so we, we had Pastor Rick use that passage as well. I believe they're from Romans. And then, and then the next, let all who take refuge and rejoice, let them sing for joy. 
that, that really helped guide the pastoral prayer and the offering. Uh, just real quickly, a couple more, and then um, I'll, we'll let you go. Um, the next one, one of the beautiful things about Scripture-guided worship is that we, we often say Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So Scripture points us to other passages of Scripture. Here's one. We looked at this idea of God is able. It was the Second Corinthians series, and I just took that phrase, God is able, and I was beginning to think, okay, where are the passages that talk about God is able? Ephesians, I believe, right there. Now to him who is able. So we use that uh, in the middle of our God says. We use that uh, as a passage as well. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Our song from age to age was a great song to sing for that point. And then the preparation of our hearts for Lord's Supper. We did the responsive reading from Psalm 116 from the idea that um, that grace abounding in the, in the abounding of, of his love. Uh, and uh, you can see that. So all having sufficiency in times, you may abound in every good work. Uh, that was the, the prayer for there. I'd like to spend a little bit more time with this, but I, 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 I know you, you've got to get to supper. And, but that's the idea. It, it's, there's, nothing, there's nothing that really um, in any way... There is, there is both this wonderful freedom in using the scriptures to do this, but there's this also this wonderful realization that we're being, that we're being regulated, that we're being governed, that we're being directed, that our songs and hymns and prayers are all coming out of and from this. And I, I can't think of any more... I, I will tell you this, doing this for almost 30 years, I can't wait for Sundays. And I can't wait to put these together. I can't wait to sit down and look at Tony and say, what, where, what passage are you in? You may say, I'm in this one. I say, well, look, here are a couple Psalms that might go well with that. Or here's, maybe we could use the passage right out of there. And we've used, we used a prayer of confession the other day from Micah. Dr. Nettles, I don't know if there's anything else you want to maybe mention about this as someone who goes through this as well or any other thoughts you might have? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing, I think one thing that's worth saying is that not only does the, uh, does the Scripture guide the content of worship, the worship is an exposition of the Scripture. You're entering in experientially into the meaning of the text as you sing the hymns, and it, it makes the, the text itself, it, it helps us see the kind of spiritual power that is in the text it has that transforming effect so you're doing an exposition of the text as well as, well as allowing the text just to govern the elements of scripture yes. i think that's a very important yes. thing that i believe our people are really picking up on yes to it, see the richness of each of these words and the, and the phrases and yes don't take them for granted anymore we just can pass over them so quickly but when you isolate one of those passages and you say here's a hymn that relates to that here's another passage of scripture we're going to say together that relates to that and that makes that, that text, that particular phrase in the text, just pop up with, with the life that is really in it. Yes. And, and I also, it's not every week that, that, that the preaching passage is exactly the passage that guides our service. I think that, that could happen, but we do a lot of, of, of engagement this way where it may not lend itself particularly that way, but boy, there are other passages that, that enfold that and that set that up so beautifully. So it, I'm not governed exactly by what the pastor. This really came out, I did, this, this came a part of what I began to do. Dennis, when you were at second, 
our pastor was an was a textual expositor, and he would not finish his messages until Saturday night. And sometimes he would spend. I mean, he spent five years in Ephesians and three weeks on the word stand. So there was no way. I, there was no way I could. No, I'm not kidding. No, I'm not. That's not hyperbole either. So there, I, I felt like there was a need for me to figure out. Okay, how am I going to how am I going to sculpt worship in a way that is faithful to the word that would point to other parts of the word, and that's how we. And he and and he was thrilled with it, and and that's how we ended up doing it. And I wasn't we've been doing this a long time. Dennis was Dennis was on, on our staff at Second Baptist Church in Springfield, and it. But but over the years, it's become so much more a realization of. I, I think this is pretty Baptistic. <laughs> I think this. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, I have my card up here. Uh, if any of you'd like to get in hold of me, and if there's any way I can help you or encourage you in any way, I would love to do so. So may God bless you in your sculpting and designing of worship for his glory, for the good of your church, to serve them and to lift high the name of Jesus through his word. God bless you all. Thanks a lot.